take you away from that. I hate to interrupt it. It's beautiful. Wish you could see it. Thousands of Oriental young people, mostly under the age of 30, a few old 35 or 40 year olds in there, worshiping and reverence and the beauty of holiness. So, what's wrong with this? There is something wrong with it. It's the lyrics. One lyric, only one lyric, only one word that they get wrong and they get so wrong that I have to make an issue of it because I sadly, everywhere, almost everywhere I go, if we do this song and somebody else leads it, I have to point out the same mistake. So arise from your rest Where did anybody get that lyric? In the first place, does it make any sense? No. Are you going to tell God to arise from his rest in order to be blessed by our praise? That doesn't make a lick of sense. But worse than not making any sense, it shows how good this generation is at worship and the music and how unbearably biblically ignorant we are. All you got to do, if you're wondering about the lyric, is Google it. Psalm 132 verse 8, which is a quotation from Second Chronicles chapter 6 verse 41. Arise, O Lord, to your rest, which is upon the ark of thy strength. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever, says the Lord. Here will I dwell, for I have greatly desired it. What is God desiring? Where is his rest? Why did Stephen Fry write it? correctly arise to your rest because Stephen knows the scriptures. And we are sadly a generation now that doesn't know the scriptures. And out of that ignorance comes not only bad lyrics, but a lack of vision and a lack of understanding of the whole purpose of God in the gathering of his people. God will come to his people and flow through his people before he comes for his people. I don't ever want to be uh, uh, unnecessarily polemic about doctrines that there's many different points of view about. Some things are are not negotiable, obviously. Uh, But when it comes to end-time prophecy... There's so many points of view and so many ideas, and I see validity in almost every school uh, that I look at. Parts of every school has some truth. But at the risk of uh, alienating certain people, I, I have to say more and more that the idea of the church flying out of here any minute because God doesn't want the church to have to suffer through anything is such a typical Americanistic 
pleasure-centered, materialistic-centered idea that it's no wonder that it gains such popularity in our culture, but finds uh, very little support in Scripture or in church history. And now as we face a, a rising manifestation of gloom and darkness throughout the earth, with a hatred for the things of God becoming more and more open. Uh, there's other scriptures that come to mind that are more fitting to where we are than the scriptures that speak of our flying out of here. Actually, no scripture really does speak of us flying out of here, but I won't get into that right now. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let me state again what I just said a few moments ago. God comes to his people and manifests himself through his people before he's coming for his people. And until that manifestation of his glory through his people, first to his people, then through his people, has occurred in the last harvest of the end of the age, we don't need to be looking for some any moment escape out of the demands of our present world. Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, and the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And some can obviously interpret that verse only to refer to the coming of Jesus in the Incarnation, which we celebrate uh, during the Nativity celebrations of, of the Church. And certainly that's valid, but it has a dual fulfillment. He will arise upon his people and shine through his people at the end of the age, just as he did upon his son and through his son at the beginning of this age. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, and other verses we could cite that say the same thing. You are the temple of the living God, both corporately and individually. Same thing is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. I just want to put these verses in your thinking. You have grown together unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God by His Spirit. So the corporate body of Christ is the temple of God, where God comes to dwell, not just at the end of the age, but throughout the church age. This is, again, individual and corporate. John 14, verse 23, speaks to us individually. It says, if anyone loves me, he or she will keep my words, and my Father will love him or her, and we will come to them and make our home with them. John chapter 1, verse 14 
And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We talked in our session previous to this one about the, the glory of God being the goodness of God reaching out in visible, physical, manifest forms in order to, to communicate the mind of God and the heart of God, which is light and life and love and purity and goodness and truth. In Jesus' prayer for his disciples, which includes us, because Jesus actually says in that prayer, I pray not only for these who are here with me, but for all those who will eventually believe in me because of their word, which is everybody. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Or reveal your Son so your Father, so your Son can reveal you, Father. Or manifest your power and goodness to and through your Son so it can flow to and through Him to the world. And then the Son can reveal you to the, the world. That's the, the idea there. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's things going on in this conversation between the Father and the Son that we, we don't understand. We have record of it, and we can listen in on it, and commentators can comment on it, but I don't know if we would ever be able to plumb the depths of exactly what it means when Jesus says, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's language that is communicating and uh, describing things that are beyond our dimension, beyond our comprehension. It has something to do with the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how they are one God. And I won't even try to go there now except to point it out. And then he says in verse 10, All mine, Father, are yours, and all that is yours is mine. And I am glorified in them. Verse 22, The glory you gave me, I have given to them. Verse 24, Father, I, will, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, will be with me where I am, so they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Again, it's referring to things that are beyond our, our, our capability of discussing or comprehending. God's glory in his people is a predestined and inevitable fact. It will come to pass. Everything Jesus just prayed in John 17 must be brought to pass. There's other things in there that I didn't quote because I was focusing on that whole concept of glory. But he also says things in there like, Father, that they all might become one, even as you and I are one, so that the world will know that you sent me. The greatest evangelical or evangelistic message in the scriptures is communicated to the world 
when the body of Christ becomes one, not one in style or one in denomination or one in secondary or tertiary practices or even theologies. Foundational, unchangeable truth is the one thing that the church all holds in common, and that is Jesus himself. The things that have divided us and separated us and turned us just inside the United States into, I think the last count was 36,000 different sects and groups and divisions. Jesus has prayed that we will all come into a oneness of love and truth and unity of heart so that the world can know that Jesus is who he says he is through his people. Now that prayer has to come to pass. It has to happen. It will happen, but this is another reason why I pretty much settled the question of not flying out of here anytime soon, because until it does happen, we can't go anywhere. And that seems to not be a verse that people want to focus on. They just build their own theologies based on a scripture here and a scripture there and sew it all together and make a nice, neat neat package. But uh, ever since the early 60s or the mid-60s, I've been hearing about the any minute return of the Lord and the church better be ready. I wish I had been listening for 40 plus years to a a message uh, about the church fulfilling our destiny and responsibility and that we would be crying out for the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we all might be one, is he and the Father are one, so that the world can know by the manifest glory of God coming through his people to the earth, we would have had the the great end-time harvest by now. So I'm not real interested in, in just saying the same old, same old, um, forgive me, I'm I'm tired of hearing about the rapture and about the church flying out when we haven't even obeyed our Lord. We haven't even done the basics. He's coming after a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Well, that has to come to pass too, folks. And the spots and the wrinkles are pretty clearly manifest. So what does that mean about where we really are? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of his word in order that he might present to himself a glorious church or a church in all her glory, some translations say. A church having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she might be holy and blameless. That's what he's coming after. And before he comes after us, he's coming to us in order that he might shine through us at a time when the darkness seems at its worst. As we pointed out previously from the book of Daniel, those that belong to God will shine like the stars, Daniel says. Well, stars shine most when it's darkest. 
And so the glory of God shines through his people in the midst of the darkness. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon you, and the glory of the Lord will be seen upon you, and kings will come to the brightness of your rising. That's talking about Jesus. Yes. It's talking about the church. Yes. There's no separation of the head and his body. Now, if that's going to happen then we've got to really begin to face some facts. And I don't I don't want to dwell on this and I don't I'm not going to say anything you don't already know. I mean the audience in Nightlight is not going to be people I have to shake awake about these issues. I'm just mentioning them in order to give platform for the things that I do want to talk about that maybe we haven't thought of before. But we all know, sadly, because we've been part of it the terrible detriment uh, that the church has been in the West. Rather than salt and light, we have actually done something more damaging than failing to shine or failing to hold back darkness. We have actually become a culture, an enculturated Christianity. That's a Christianity that has become warped and woofed into the fabric of the worldly culture so that when people think about the kingdom of God, if they ever think about that at all, they, they don't think about the kingdom, really. They, they think about there's the school and there's the football field and there's the little league basketball place and there's the grocery store and there's the post office and there's the federal building and there's churches sprinkled throughout all that. Now nobody thinks of this in a wrong spirit. I'm not making fun or blaming anybody for these th- these ways of thinking. I'm just pointing out this is just what happens in a culture. When, when steeples become part of the fabric of society, and then, you know, like in, in the Bible Belt, uh, and you may see this other places than the Bible Belt, you've got your uh, Rotary Club building and your Lions Club meeting place, and then there's the Masonic Lodge, and it's usually sitting right next to the Baptist or Methodist Church because the Baptist or the Methodist Church is all wrapped up with the Masonic Lodge which is an occult temple to demon spirits. But it's all built together as a spiritual house for what to dwell in? God? No, I don't think so. I'm not saying God in his mercy and grace doesn't move at times in that Baptist church or even move in spite of the Masonic Lodge in um, and among the people of that Masonic Lodge. God can't be stopped by devils and in his grace and mercy, he can go where he wants to go and do whatever he chooses to do. But don't think for a minute that the, the, the building built together as a spiritual house of the neighborhood I just described is the kingdom of God or is anything God would ultimately bless or affirm. It's part of a system that is so corrupt and so mixed and so full of compromise that as the 60s gave way to the 1970s and the 70s to the 80s and all the enculturated perversions of those culture those those eras began to to increase by the time we come to where we are now 
we have a church system that has as much of the world in it as the world has, and we have no prophetic authority to speak to the world because we are so much of the world. And I've pointed those things out. Many, many other people have pointed them out. Like I said, I know that you are not ignorant of those things, and I don't want to insult your intelligence by dwelling on them. I'm just trying to point out that so much of what we think of as church, God doesn't acknowledge as the church. The church is a mystical, supernatural entity that is manifested throughout all the earth. Song of Solomon says it like this, Who is she that comes forth out of the wilderness? Glorious as the sun, beautiful as the moon, and terrifying as an army with banners. Who is that church? Well, in some places uh, it might be the, the, the gathering of people in a church building that people call a church. But in other places it may be a group of uh, herdsmen who gather in somebody's tent uh, and, and, uh, or another place, uh, refugees who, who gather from home to home uh, escaping persecution or uh, two or three people who meet in a living room in a part of the country where the gospel is despised and there's very few believers and they meet there to pray and to seek the face of God. They are the glorious church without spot or wrinkle destined to be eventually uh, without spot or wrinkle. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is so much more than what culture has reduced the word down to. And because we who claim to be the church, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I do want all of us to take responsibility for wherever we participated in the, the thing that I'm describing. I take responsibility before the Lord. I hope we all will. Because that's our only hope for transcending it and becoming who we really are supposed to be. But in, in the, the current disintegration that we're watching all around us, uh, I just found out this week uh, in my hometown of Longview, Texas, next week on my wedding anniversary, they're going to have their first gay parade. And uh, Tom and I were talking about this just today, and he, he mentioned, yeah, I remember that first national parade, homosexual parade that took place in Washington, D.C. 25 years ago, and the news media uh, carefully edited any national portrayal of what that parade was about, full nudity, sexual activity going on in broad daylight in the middle of the street, um, you know, Paul said we shouldn't even speak of those things that are done in secret. But then uh, Wayne Watson wrote a song in response to that, Giants in the Land, where he said they're celebrating sin in the streets. Well, yeah, they're celebrating sin in the streets. It's no longer done in secret. And so uh, Os Guinness was watching that parade, and uh, he said to uh, a friend standing by him, he said, with tears in his eyes, here go the unpaid bills of the church. Where were we 
when we begin to kill babies and sacrifice them to Moloch and Baal. Where were we? Well, we seem to be at uh, concerts and Bible studies and church meetings and so forth. Where were we? We were building a, a private Christian ghetto culture. We didn't want to get involved. We were actually being told from pulpits that we weren't supposed to be politi- politically active. We were only supposed to be spiritually active. When the whole message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God coming down into the earth. So when you don't have the church manifesting its true prophetic nature and its true uh, power to speak truth to power, then you have power taking over uh, in, e- in evil proportions and in evil manifestations in greater and greater proportions. Now, the glory of the Lord is going to eventually shine through his people in such a way that it challenges that dark kingdom and brings it to ultimate conflict, which brings the close of the age. If the church is taken off of the earth during that conflict for whatever purpose God has to take the church off of the earth, that's perfectly fine. But I've gone beyond the ability to tolerate the idea of of a pre-trib rapture all based on the idea that we're not appointed unto wrath. Tribulation is not wrath. The idea that the church is taken out of the earth because we are not appointed to wrath, has somehow become an idea in people's minds that, well, God didn't want anybody uh, to suffer. God didn't want anybody to go through anything bad. Where you find scripture for that idea, I have never been able to comprehend. We must, through much tribulation, Paul said, enter into the kingdom of God. After you suffered a while, the Lord will establish you and make you, and make you perfect. We talked about that a, a little bit in our previous time together, but right now I want to focus on this issue of the glory of God, the glorious church that will manifest the purpose and power and presence of God in the earth, which will bring the final harvest. But before we can talk about that wonderful truth, we got to talk about something just the opposite, and that is, What about when the glory has departed? Because for the most part, let's be honest, there's no glory on the church in America. There's very little glory anywhere. There are a few places. Thank God there are a few places because God is patient and loving and has nothing but loving intention for his people and for the whole earth. But if you think the glory of God is findable in your average Sunday morning church service or your average church culture, please show me where it is. I see a lot of counterfeit. I see a lot of spooky weirdness. I hear a lot of people prophesying out of each other's mouths. They prophesy what they heard somebody else prophesy, what they heard somebody else prophesy. I see a lot of occult mixture. I hear people telling all kinds of stories. Some of them are wonderful and blessed. 
But many are just unscriptural, unbiblical, and maybe manifestations of counterfeit spirits. But there's no discernment because people don't, you know, Isaiah says in chapter 8, if you speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in you. And people are prophesying out of their own experience, out of their own dreams or visions, out of whatever goes through their mind, whatever imagination passes through their mind. They speak it with the same authority as if it came right out of Scripture. And they don't know the Scriptures because many of them think they don't need the Scriptures because they're more spiritual now and they don't need the Bible. Well, I don't want to dwell on that. I'm just pointing out that that is the fact. Then there's the whole part of the church that doesn't even know that the Spirit exists. They don't even know that there be such a thing as the Holy Spirit. They just live in their uh, ice cube, frozen, dead religious orthodoxy. Which brings me to the danger that A.W. Tozer spoke about over and over throughout his ministry to the church. That is the danger of a legalistic concept of positional righteousness that does not have a relationship with God. The danger of a legalistic positional righteousness that does not have a real relationship with God. This is demonstrated to me painfully in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 5. If you'll read, please take the time. If you're not familiar with this story, please read this story for yourself. But to, to give you an, over, uh, an overview, uh, this is the period of the, the closing of the days of the judges. It's about the birth of Samuel, who would be the last judge of Israel before Israel is allowed a king. And you know the story. Hannah has had no child, and she's weeping before God, crying out to to be able to have a child. And Eli, the, the priest, is so spiritually inept and so eaten up with his own carnality that he accuses Hannah of insulting the Lord by being drunk in his presence. And she says to him uh, respectfully, you know, I'm not drunk, I'm, I'm crying, I'm, I'm brokenhearted. And uh, so she does have her child. God grants her the birth of a baby boy who is Samuel, who goes to live with Eli because Hannah has kept her word to give her son back to God. And Samuel grows to become the great prophet that guides Israel through the transition from the judges to the kings. But in the meantime... The, the evil and the, the complete lack of anointing and lack of discernment and lack of the presence of God and lack of hunger for the presence of God is so great that the enemies come and take the ark. Arise to your rest and be blessed by our praise. The rest of God, the ark of your glory, the ark of your strength. Those verses that we opened up with. The ark, the symbol of the presence of God has departed. It's been taken by the enemy. And uh, when Eli's daughter-in-law hears about the ark being taken and her husband being killed in the battle, she gives birth to her child and that child is born at the same moment that Eli falls and breaks his neck and 
the child's father is killed in battle and the ark is taken. And she names her baby Ichabod, Ichavod. The glory has departed. Gavod, glory, Ichavod, the glory, no glory. The glory has departed. What would cause the glory to depart? Well, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 8, you'll get a, a painful picture of it. Some of these verses are so painful. They're, they're just too painful almost to read. But God says to Ezekiel, come and look at what they're doing inside my sanctuary. They are driving me away from my sanctuary because of the evils they are practicing the horrible evils that they are participating in. And when you read the description of the horrible evils they're participating in, it's like reading a description of a porn store or some sleazy, smoke-filled room of, of uh, perversion or some, some orgy-filled room. But it's all taking place inside the sanctuary. So that's all, that's all Old Testament. You know, I'm really, I, I'm, a, I'm as weary of that as I am of the pre-trib rapture deception. Um, as if the word of God can be divided. Well, we don't have to, we don't have to pay any attention to this or that. It's Old Testament, I hear people say. And again, it just, it's, it's part of the un, unbearably painful ignorance that is the, the church at, at the present time. Nobody nobody knows the scriptures. Nobody wants to know them. Uh, they don't know anything about the, the temple of God, the tabernacle of Moses, the, the, the purpose. The, the, tabernacle, the tabernacle was a map leading to realities we're still headed for. But every denomination carves up the word of God to suit its own preconceived ideas of reality and then there's no there's no flow of revelation. This is one reason why God, this is the good news. I need to give you some good news. God is destroying the man-made structures of counterfeit churchianity that disallows the flow of revelation and understanding and unity and love that would cause the body to build up itself in love. See, Paul says in Ephesians that the body, the whole body, builds up itself in love by the joints and bands being connected together. See, Mary and I have a, have a rich experience of the body of Christ because we have been in Pentecostal tent revivals and Baptist revivals and uh, street meetings with hippie Christians and Anglican high church liturgies and Roman Catholic charismatic prayer groups and home meetings with people who have uh, just come to the Lord and just wanted to love Jesus and open their home up. We, we've been in all of those experiences. Uh, we, we have the, the good of reform education theology behind us, and yet we also have the, the blessing of the move of the Spirit in every part of the church and and we don't we don't when we come into a city we don't see the baptist church and the methodist church and the presbyterian church and the anglican church and the catholic church we don't see that we see various buildings where have they have names out in front that they stick the word church on but the church in the city 
is that mystical united body that is building up itself in love. To whatever degree it's there, it is building up itself in love. And to whatever degree that's happening, the glory of God and the manifest presence of God is upon that place. See? But just like the glory of God can depart from Israel. This is what Tozer was trying to warn us about, about the danger of legalistic positional righteousness. The Jews said, nothing can happen to us. We have the temple. We have the temple. But evangelicalism says, nothing can happen to us. We're justified. We're justified. As if God is some kind of bureaucrat who will, though he knows you're an adulterer in heart, and though he knows you don't love him nor nor desire his ways, he'll check the registrar and he'll see that the legal action was done, and and uh, and and say, well, you know, even though I know you hate me and don't want to be near me and don't want my ways, I, I nothing I can do about it because, you know, the the legal transaction was taken place years ago, and uh, there we are, we're stuck with it. So you're you're still okay. God, God's not a bureaucrat, thank God. The glory departed Israel because of sin. God was driven away from his sanctuary because of the evil practices going on in the deep inner heart, the sanctuary, inside the sanctuary of the, of the people's hearts. And you want a New Testament version of this? Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, God says to the church of Ephesus, if you don't repent and return to your first love, I will come and remove your lampstand. I'll remove your lampstand. Most people don't know what a lampstand is because they don't know anything about the tabernacle because they haven't bothered to learn. The tabernacle of Moses is a map of reality. And the outer court, and then the inner court, leads to the holiest of all. The only light in the inner court was the lampstand. And if, if Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand, he's saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to take away the supernatural source of understanding and light so that you will, you'll be wandering in darkness. You won't, you won't be able, I'm not going to hold a light for you while you desecrate my word. And the saddest part of all was that no one even knew when he left. Now listen, doctrinally, I'm not saying that the Lord has withdrawn from us and that uh, we are lost eternally if we have given our hearts to the Lord. Um, that's that's not what that's not the point of this. You know, I find when people want to get into a rancor about whether a Christian can lose his salvation or not. Usually, they seem to be interested in that subject so they can find out how close to the world they can get and still have fire insurance. That's, it's, it's like, can you imagine a couple discussing how, how much they can be unfaithful to each other and still be married? It's, it's ludicrous. So I'm not interested in that, that, spot, that aspect. It doesn't matter if you're Calvinist or Armenian. It doesn't matter if you or charismatic, or reform, or Baptist, or whatever. It doesn't matter. One thing all of the reformers agreed on, regardless of their view of eternal security and predestination, whatever, they all agreed on this fact, that our relationship to Jesus on the heart level is what constitutes 
our saving, uh, our salvation and our our saving strength in the time of trouble. And uh, just this is why again I mentioned A. W. Tozer's warning, because it's such an important warning. And there are so many people, so many people, who think because they have gone through the motions of an initial encounter with Christ, and then choose to live as close to the world, if not fully in the world, as they can get, that that they're going to be okay. Well, you know what? Maybe they will be okay because the saving grace of God that first brought them to himself has plenty of means to bring us to true, full, complete repentance. So, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, I want to read to you. Uh, I recognize there are other applications to this verse, to ver- other aspects of the history of Israel in the close of the age that we don't have time to address. Just let this verse speak to you in the context of what we're talking about here in, in this time together. What will it take to bring the people of God, the city of God, the Zion of God, which is the whole church, Jew and Gentile, what will it take to bring us into reality with God so that God can manifest his glory to us and through us in the earth? Isaiah 4, verse 4 and 5, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from their midst, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. The Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and a shining fire by night. For upon all the glory of the Lord shall be a covering and a defense. Regardless of where that applies in the past history, I believe it speaks to us right now that there will be a necessary cleansing, burning, purging fire of holiness that must correct and and purge us from the depth of deception that we have come into in modern Americanized, westernized Christian Christianese, Christianism instead of real relationship with with the Lord. Now, I believe that the necessity of judgment is inevitable, unavoidable, impending, and something that we will be grateful for once it's done its work. Because I've said this over and over, I hope you're hearing me, There is something worse than chastising judgment, and that is to be left to ourselves in the condition we are in with no remedy. That to me is far more daunting, far more sad, far more painful, and far more ultimately destructive than any corrective chastising judgment that God may bring upon us. And so I say it with fear and trembling, but I welcome the chastising judgment which is absolutely coming and is inevitable and cannot be prayed away, short of the whole nation repenting, which would be wonderful, but it's not going to happen. Isaiah 26, verses 8 through 11. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. 
Our heartfelt desire is for your name and for the remembrance of you. My soul yearns for you, O Lord, in the night. Yes, my spirit within me seeks you earnestly. For only when your judgments are in the earth will the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though favor and grace is shown to the wicked, yet they do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness they deal perversely and refuse to acknowledge your majesty. That's where we are right now. And we have finally crossed the line. I was listening to a dear friend and respected prophetic minister uh, yesterday. I was in one of her meetings. And uh, she made the statement that though she had carried the burden of repentance for America for 20 years, she realized not long ago that that burden was no longer there. She no longer found herself in great uh, distress in crying out for America to repent. And she felt this kind of lightheartedness in, in her. And she, she asked the Lord about it, and the Lord made it clear to her it's that he's no longer calling America to repentance. There comes a point when the call to repentance drives us farther and farther from that repentance. So there comes a point where the cry for us to repent ceases so as not to make the damnation even more destructive when it does come. We are beyond the call to repentance now, I believe, in America. That doesn't mean individuals are beyond the call of repentance. I'm not saying that. But I remember years ago talking to a, a friend in Germany who was very elderly. He's with the Lord now, but he was a young teenage boy when Hitler rose to power, and he was part of a very intense spiritual community of believers who were praying for the, for Germany. And they, he said, I remember the day when our leaders said, we have crossed the point of no return now nationally. Now we must ride out the storm. And we, their prayers changed from crying out to God to restore the nation and bring the gospel and you know bring the light to Germany. Uh, they had to ride out the storm and get to the other side of it. And uh, I believe that we now are going to have to ride out the storm. The opportunity for repentance uh, as a nation the opportunity for return as a nation uh, is is out of reach. Now, don't don't overreact to what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's hopeless. I'm not saying okay, it's all damned. It's, I didn't say that. There will be a softening of the coming judgments, dependent on how obedient we are to intercession and obedience to God in the things we've been talking about. So. This is not a time to stop praying. It's a time to pray with all your heart. It's a, not a time to stop gathering with other believers in intercession. It's a time to do it more than ever. It's, it's a time to listen to God and do whatever he, you hear him say. Now, in closing, just let me bring your mind to focus on one vitally important thing, which is more important, actually, than anything else. When the glory departed from Israel, when the, when the ark was taken the power of the presence of the holiness of God was not taken captive by the Philistines when they captured the ark. It was the glory that had departed from Israel. The glory had not departed from God. And one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, it'd be such a great movie, 
Reminds me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. When uh, they had the Ark of the Covenant boxed up in a box with a swastika on it. And uh, my, I think my favorite scene in all of movie history, maybe, is when when the, the burning presence of God burned the uh, swastika off that box. I just love that. But anyway, something far greater than that actually did happen in history, and that is when they took the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple of Dagon, the fish god, and they went in the next morning and found Dagon over on his face in front of the Ark. And so they propped their god back up on its seat. Can you imagine propping your god back up? They propped his their god back up, and the next day when they came in, Dagon was back on his face, but this time his arms and his head had been knocked off. And uh, then boils broke out among the Philistines, and they began to beg Israel for some way to get the ark back where it belonged. You need to remember, when the glory has departed from the church, it doesn't mean the glory no longer exists. It doesn't mean the glory no longer is uh, ruling heaven and earth. There is a key, if I can use that term, which I don't like, but there is a key to unlocking the doors of the treasures of peace and stability and clarity of thought in the days ahead. And that is to learn to abide in the throne of God. And in our next session, we'll talk about the power of the throne room of the universe. Until then, thanks for listening. God bless you. Bye-bye.